This is uh, exciting. We're uh, going into some places where it's costing people their lives, you know, and it's a costly message, costly gospel. It costs God everything, and uh, what a what an, what an awesome honor it is that uh, God is sending us into these places. Let's, let's commit to praying for them uh, the next two weeks. Okay, uh, we're going to dive into Exodus, where we've been for the last couple of months. Exodus 11. I don't have a blue Bible this morning. Does someone have the, the page number of Exodus 11? It goes Genesis, Exodus 52. All right, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be looking at Exodus 11 and 12, but I'm just going to read 11 right now. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Isn't that kind of interesting? God says, hey, by the way, when you're leaving, kind of ask them for, for, for goods, and they give them goods when they leave. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. The firstborn son of, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, and all the people who follow you, and after that I will leave. And then Moses, hot with anger. (laughs) That's interesting detail too. Hot with anger, left Pharaoh. And the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. This is God's word. You can be seated. <clears throat> okay, just a review of where we've been. If you were here last week, uh, Greg taught on the plagues that God sends. And there's ten in all. Greg talked on nine. And with these plagues, I mean, we have to ask this question. What is God going for? What's, what's the purpose behind these plagues? Well, what does the Bible call them? Signs and wonders. What are signs and wonders in the Bible? Well, think some of the, the, the parts of the Bible that we're more familiar with, like John's Gospel. In fact, John's Gospel is called a book of signs. And John ends his Gospel and says that these signs were written so that you would know and believe. So I want us to see today that the plagues are not punishments from God directed at the people. In fact, look at Exodus 12, verse 12. And I want you to turn there. I want your eyes to see this if you have a Bible. 
God says, on that same night, I will pass over Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So these plagues are directed against the gods of Egypt. And what they're doing is they're unleashing God's rule upon the forces of chaos against the rulers and the principalities of darkness that have set themselves against God. It's the kingdom of heaven being unleashed against the anti-kingdom. And through these plagues, God is showing the world that he alone is God. And I love what Jesus said. Jesus said, if I cast out de- demons by the, by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of, of heaven has come upon you. And it's interesting, in the Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians were the first to recognize the finger of God. They come to Pharaoh about halfway through, and they're like, we can't duplicate this. This is the finger of God. And see, what God says over and over again after and before each plague is he said, I'm doing this so that Israel would know me. And so that Egypt would know me, that I am the Lord. And remember the kind of knowing that the Bible is talking about. It's that, it's that Hebrew word, yadah. And yadah is not the kind of knowing that two plus two equals four, but it's that kind of knowing that's deep, personal, and intimate kind of knowing. Because what God wants is he wants Israelites, Egyptians, and even Pharaoh to know him. I want us to see that. Now we've come to the last plague, the last sign, the plague of the firstborn. Through this plague, and of course the plague of darkness uh, foreshadowing it, darkness, when darkness comes down, it's a picture of God's judgment. But especially now through this, this tenth and final plague, God is executing his judgment. Look at... Uh, 12 verse 12 again, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. And we're going to see that God's judgment is not just coming down on the gods and it's not coming down on just Pharaoh and it's not just coming down on the Egyptians but on all of Egypt. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word judgment. When I think judgment, I think punishment. And then when I apply judgment to God, I I think of this angry, vengeful God who's coming to punish the world when it says that God is going to judge the world. But here's the deal. When the Bible speaks of judgment, God's judgment, it's tied to God's justice of God bringing justice to the world. And God's justice is not merely punitive. His justice is primarily restorative. It's God making everything right. I don't know if you've ever sat in the courtroom with a person who's been deeply wounded or wronged or hurt, and the the judge brings justice to that situation. It's just awesome. And this is why the the psalmist is always uh, crying out, how long, O Lord, before you judge us? Just there's this longing for God to come to judge the world. In fact, look at uh, Psalm 96. This is just one of those great examples in the Psalms. Starting at verse 10, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. 
God will judge the peoples with equity. Therefore, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? For he comes and he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. That's the reason why the the mountains are going to sing and and the trees are going to clap. And all creation is just going to say yes. Because God's going to judge the earth. And his perfect justice will restore all things. And think about for the oppressed and those who've been wronged and the weak and those who suffer, God's judgment is not bad news. It's good news. It's God making everything right. And so that's the context a little bit of, of what's going on here now in, when we start with chapter 11, verse 1. Where it says, now that the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. This last plague, God is unleashing his judgment upon Egypt. Upon every man, woman, and child in Egypt. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. All of Egypt. And then look at verse 6. There will be such loud wailing throughout Egypt. That word there is the word za'akah. Do you remember what za'akah means? It's the loud wailings. It's, it's the screams of people. People are going to scream. In fact, it's going to be like it's never been before or ever will be. That's how great the screaming will be. And what is the justice that God will unleash? Well, that's in verse 5. Look at verse 5. God says, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. No one is immune from this. From the lowest to the highest, from the slave girl to Pharaoh himself. And I know what you're asking. You're like, how is this justice? Well, I think, first of all, at face value... In, in the context of Exodus, this is poetic justice. I mean, Pharaoh's the first one to turn the Nile to blood when he orders uh, that all the, the sons of the Hebrews to be thrown in the Nile. God says to Pharaoh, he says, you let go of my firstborn son or I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And Pharaoh has God's firstborn son by the throat. So I guess you could look at it that way, but that's really not the complete picture. Because the justice that God is going to enact is going to be upon all Egypt. Everyone who lives in Egypt. Which includes the Israelites. So when God says this in verse 5, that the firstborn of every family in Egypt will die, I'm telling you, Moses is shaking in his boots. Until God gives him gospel in verse 7. And then God says, But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark or any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. In other words, this final plague is not going to touch you. 
And why is that? Is it because the Israel's better? Is it because they're more righteous or more spiritual? Well, God gives his answer in chapter 12 to that question. Let's turn to chapter 12 now. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month will be, is to be for you the first month in the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Okay, God just changed their calendar. It would be like uh, all of a sudden, instead of January being the first month of the year, now all of a sudden we're going to make April the first month of the year. And, and why is God doing this? Well, how many of you right now know the day when God got a hold of your life, he lifted your life out of the pit, and he took you to himself? Does anybody here actually know the, t- the day? A few of us. Okay, well, this is kind of their spiritual birthday. Okay, and God's saying, I even want your whole calendar to be centered on this month, because in this month is when I set you free, delivered you, and I took you to myself and redeemed you. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on in verse 2. Verse 3, God says, take a lamb. A lamb. If you want to know why there is a distinction between Egypt and Israel, there's your answer. On this night of terror and screaming, when God is going to execute his perfect judgment onto Egypt, when his judgment's going to come down like a hot knife through butter, what's going to save Israel? A lamb. A lamb is going to be the catalyst through which she is saved, delivered, redeemed, set free. A lamb. A lamb. Okay? God's going to take the weakest and most helpless creature on the earth and bring about his greatest salvation. It says, on the tenth day, each man is to take a lamb for his household. In other words, one lamb per family. Now, in our world, it's all about the individual, but in that world, it's all about the family. In fact, this word um, for household is the Hebrew word Beit Av. Beit Av is found all over the Bible. Beit Av simply means the house of your father. In fact, to this day in the Middle Eastern world, everything is arranged around the Beit Av. A person's identity, a person's worth, a person's significance, all their meaning is all derived from their Beit Av, namely one's father. And I want us to see something here because it's the father's responsibility. Not the church's not the governments, not the schools. It's the father's responsibility to get that lamb for his family. And that's significant to me. I'm a father. I'm looking at fathers. And the place where God is going to kind of push in his redemption and push out his redemption, it's not through the government, it's not even through the church, it's, it, it's not through schools, it's through home. Homes. The home is the primary vehicle of God by he, which he wants to push his redemption in and out. And it starts with you, dads. 
starts with you. Taking responsibility. Also, I want us to notice, uh, God says, okay, if, if, if your family is too small for one lamb, then I want you to join with your neighbor. Because God doesn't want this lamb to be wasted in any way. He doesn't want it to be too much. He doesn't want it to be too little. He wants it to be just the perfect amount of lamb. Verse 5, God also says, this can't just be any lamb from your flocks. He says, this lamb has to be one-year-old male without blemish. It needs to be perfect in every way. So since we're so removed from the natural world, let me show you what a one-year-old lamb would look like. (laughs) That's what they're to take. Uh, My kids hardly know where chicken comes from. I don't know, is that your kids too? Um, But This lamb, then, God instructs, on what day of the month are they to take it into their family? The tenth day. So the tenth day, this this little guy comes into the family. Now, I I know what my family would be doing with this little guy. Uh, This thing would be rivaling Bentley. Bentley's our dog. And the, the, the kids would be fighting over who gets to play with the lamb. Very quickly, this thing would turn into a pet. Okay, and verse 6, look at verse 6. It says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So from the 10th day until the 14th day, uh, it says, you shall take care of it. The word in Hebrew there is the word hayah, which means... To become. In other words, you're taking this lamb into your house for four days to become that lamb. In other words, you are not just to have the lamb in your house, but you are to take that lamb into your house so you can spend time with that lamb, so you can get to know this lamb, so you can personally identify with this lamb, because that lamb is going to be your lamb. That lamb is going to become your very life and salvation. And they have four days to do that. Four days later, it says on the 14th at twilight, which is dusk, this lamb is to be slaughtered. And then verse 7 says, the blood is to be collected and it's to be painted on the sides of the door and over the door. So... The entrance to the home, the blood from this lamb is to be collected and then it's to be painted. And and in verse 22, God even gives um, the specific kind of paintbrush that they're to use, which is what? A hyssop branch. You're like, why does God give so much detail? But when you know your Bible and you know hyssop, when it's found in Psalm 51, when David says, cleanse me with hyssop, and then especially when you get to the crucifixion in John 18, I believe, it's a hyssop branch that they put up to Jesus after he says, I thirst. I don't know how your family would be at this, but I'm I'm, I'm putting myself into this story when I'm reading it and studying it this week. 
Verse 8 says, then the lamb is to be eaten. In fact, God gives exact instructions on how this lamb is to be prepared. And then a specific menu of, of other items to be eaten with the lamb. God even instructs them on how they are to eat the the lamb in haste. And then this all concludes with these words, it is the Lord's Passover. What's the Lord's Passover? What's the it referring to? The lamb. And see, the word Passover in Hebrew is the word Pesach. Pesach is a word that's connected to what a mother bird does with its young, how it hovers over them and shields them and protects them. In fact, I'll show you another usage of of the word Pesach in the Bible. In Isaiah 31, it says, Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will Pesach over it and rescue it. And you see that picture of, of, of what a mother hen does. This, is, I think, is in every mother, period. It's just this, this instinct with their young to just to gather them in and to protect them and to shield them. That's what Pesach means. In fact, I think Jesus, celebrating his last Passover, looks at Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you into my arms like a mother hen does her, her little ones. It's the same concept. So it, the lamb, is the Lord's Passover, the Lord's covering, the, the Lord's hovering protection, That's what the lamb is. And look at what it says in in 12, verse 13. God says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And the same thing is said later in verse 23. God says, when the Lord goes throughout the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter the house or strike you down. Why can't the destroyer, which is what? This is how I picture this. The right hand of God is sweeping his justice through Egypt. And the other hand of God is guarding and protecting those who have the blood of the lamb covering them. In fact, in verse 22, it says, do not go outside your house uh, in that night. Why, why, Why can't they go outside the house? Because... Leaving the house means you leave the covering. You're, you're, you're leaving the protection of the lamb's blood because it's all about the lamb. Now, why a lamb? See, as badly right now as I want to run forward in this story, I think we first need to go back in this story because the first hints of a lamb are in Eden. It's right after Adam and Eve's sin. And it says that God then, in their sin, has to cover them. And he covers them with the skin of an animal. And I think we have a good idea of what kind of animal it is because the next story is about Cain and Abel coming to God and offering their best, their first and best. And Cain offers what? 
the first and best of his produce from the field. And, and Abel, though, offers the first and best from his flocks. And God says, that offering right there is acceptable. That's the one. But the first time the word lamb is used in the Bible, does anybody know where it is? I love to find this this week. Genesis 22. What's Genesis 22? Thank you, because this is Crossroads. Come on. Uh, The first sermon ever preached here was from Genesis 22. And then every year, our first year, second year, third year, fourth year anniversary, we went back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22 really begins, the whole story begins in Genesis 12 when God says to Abraham, get up and leave everything. Uh, Leave your family, your comfort. Um, And and if you trust me, I I promise that I'll give you a son. And through this son, I'm going to redeem the world. And so God is, uh, Abraham is faithful to God. God is faithful to Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. And then you get to that part in Genesis 22 where God again says, Leklaka, Abraham, it's time to walk again. And my path this time for you to walk is to Mount Moriah. And this time I want you to take Isaac with you, your son, your beloved son. And I want you to offer him as a holocaust, a whole burnt offering to me. And the Bible says early the next morning, Abraham set off on that three-day journey to Moriah. In fact, Moriah is the place where Jews to this day believe that God laid the foundation stone uh, from which he created the world. We also know from the text that it's the hill in Jerusalem where the temple would later be built. But here's the question anyone reading this has to ask if they're honest. What on earth is God doing in asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son? I mean, is God a monster for asking such a thing? Is Abraham a monster for contemplating doing such a thing? Well, here's one thing I think that we don't factor in. How people thought about God back then was a lot different than we generally think about God today. Because their starting belief about God is that God is holy, 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 awesome, pure, perfect. All the things that I'm not. And so their first response to God then was not that God owes me, but that we owe God. And just think about how different that is from the way people think today. I mean, we just kind of automatically think that God owes us a comfortable, happy, prosperous life, and that somehow we all deserve this. And if our lives aren't that, if they're not happy and and good and successful, then we feel like we have a right to get angry with God. And so therefore we project all this upon Abraham and we just think that Abraham is upset about the justice aspect of God. Like how unjust it is, God, for you to demand such a thing of me. But see, in the ancient world, it's not God, you owe me. It's God, I owe you. 
They didn't struggle so much with the justice side of God. They struggled with the mercy side of God. And they understood that God always gets the first and best. God, God gets the first and best of our, of our harvest. God gets the first and best of our flocks and herds. God gets the first and best even of our own sons. I mean, even the firstborn belongs to God. I mean, look at Exodus 13. It's right here. I want you to see this with your eyes. Exodus 13, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb. Among Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. And you can go down just 12 more verses to verse 12. You are to give over to the Lord, the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. I mean, I could show you 15 other places where God says the life of the firstborn is mine. And it must be forfeited unless it's redeemed by a payment or a sacrifice. And I hope we're still asking why. Like, why? Why does the firstborn belong to God? Because there's a debt that every family owes God. There's a debt. Whether you know this or not, we are all debtors. It's the debt of sin that everybody must pay up to a holy and just God. And see, the ancients understood this. Do you? God doesn't owe you anything. You owe God. See, this is a game changer. This this is not just a small little anecdotal thought. This will change you from being a happy, joyful person. Because now everything you have is a gift. Or you can be just a bitter, angry, never get what you think you deserve. God doesn't owe you. We owe him. And so in Abraham's mind, this is not God asking Abraham, I want you to murder your son. It's saying, God, Abraham, offer up to me your son, your only son. Because you're a debtor, Abraham. And I am a just God. And you owe me something as great as your firstborn son. It's time to pay. But see, we also know from the story that there's another side to this request because Isaac, as the firstborn, represents not only what Abraham owes to God, but Isaac also represents the means by which God is going to shower his grace and mercy, not just upon Abraham, but upon the whole world because it's going to be through this son and then the son who is to come. And I want us to see this, how Isaac represents both the grace of God and the justice of God. They both run through Isaac because on the one hand, God's promise is that through Isaac, Abraham and all the families of the earth are going to be redeemed. But on the other hand, Abraham has a debt to pay and Isaac is the firstborn and he must pay up. And that's the justice of God. And I know some of you this morning, you really struggle with the justice side of God. You're like, why can't God just forgive sin? Can God just forgive sin? 
No, he can't. He can't just forgive sin. Because for sin to be forgiven, there absolutely must be a payment. And I don't know if you've ever been hurt or wounded or or the victim of some injustice, but there are basically two ways to respond to this. One way is to make that other person uh, pay for hurting you. And so you come up with all kinds of ways to beat them up and beat them down. And so doing, you're, you're, you're paying off the debt. But we know that when we do this, our hearts become hard and we almost become evil people. The other thing that, that, that we, we can do is we can forgive. But the way that we forgive means that instead of making that other person suffer, I am now heaping that suffering upon myself. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that all true forgiveness involves suffering. Because with any wrong or injustice, someone must pay. And I can either make that person pay, or I can put it upon myself and pay it off. And see, I think this whole test for Abraham flushes out one of the great tensions in the Bible, and and it's this tension. How can a just God be merciful, and how can a merciful God be just? Like, what's going to win? Is it going to be God's justice, or is it going to be God's grace? And here's the deal. Without God's justice, evil in our world goes unpunished. Think about that. But yet, without God's grace, we deserve the punishment. So what wins? And in the Abraham story, when you're reading it, it's moving along pretty fast, but then all of a sudden that story slows down. It gets really slow, and it talks about how father and son walked together. And as they're walking together, you hear those haunting words from Isaac. Isaac looks up at his dad and says, Okay, the fire and the wood are here for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And that question, where is the lamb, I think is the heart, not just of Genesis 22, it's the heart of the whole Bible. And I love Abraham's answer. He says, God will provide the lamb. In fact, that word provide there means literally to see. He's he's basically saying to Isaac, he's like, son, I, I can't see it. I can't see the lamb, but I know that God will see to it. He will see to a lamb. And most of us know the story. We know that when they get up there, God eventually provides a lamb. And that lamb acted as a substitute for Abraham's little lamb, Isaac. And a lamb that day was slaughtered in Isaac's place. That lamb paid the price. And Isaac's life was spared. And now again, we come to Exodus, and God again says, my judgment is is coming down. I'm about to unleash my judgment upon Egypt. In other words, it's time to pay up. You owe me something as great as your own firstborn son. And what's going to save Israel? It's not their goodness. It's not that they're morally or spiritually superior to Egyptians. The Bible says no one is righteous. 
That applies to Egyptians, that applies to Israelites, that applies to Muslims, that applies to Christians, that applies to Jews, that applies to atheists. No one. We are all debtors. We're debtors. And yet God in his perfect justice and his amazing grace provides an exodus. Exodus means a way. God says, when I see the blood, I will Pesach. I will protect you. I will cover you. As my judgment sweeps forth the land, I will shield you and guard you. And it's all going to be through the blood of a lamb. When I see the blood, the blood of the lamb. Because the Bible teaches that the life of any human thing is is in the blood. And so it's the lamb's life for the life of the firstborn. It's a lamb that acts as a stand-in, as a substitute. I want you to imagine this night. Because this lamb now has been a part of this family for four days. And, and now it comes time for dad to slit the throat. And I can so just envision how this would go in my family. And I'd like to say how this would especially go in my family when my kids were younger. But I know it would still go that way even today. We come to this point right now. And, and, and first of all, my kids would be like, you can't do that, dad. That, that lamb doesn't deserve this. And I'd be, I'll just keep it real here. I can't shoot a deer. I can't hurt a thing. I, in fact, when, when we lived in Israel, one of the classes was to go down to, um, one of our trips was to go down to Wadi Rum and have a Bedouin experience. And I already heard what, what happened on this trip, which is uh, a lamb's throat was going to be slit. And so I didn't go because everybody would have to watch and uh, the guy told me, he said, I was the one picked to slit the throat. And he said, I took the knife out. And I just didn't have it in me. But I tried the best I could. And nothing happened. It, he's like, that lamb just stayed in my arms, didn't move. I tried again with all my might. It still didn't do it. That lamb just stayed there. He said, by the third time, I broke through. And can you imagine that night? Can you imagine doing this with your family? Can you imagine being the one that has to do this? Can you imagine having one of your kids holding the cup and collecting the blood? And, and then can you imagine getting out the paintbrush? And we're going to now, we're going to take this blood and we're going to paint it over the doorframe. And I, I can just hear my kids like, why are you doing this, Dad? And I'd have to say to them, listen. If it's not the lamb, it's one of us. That's what this is about. And we know, I mean, you can just imagine then that morning they wake up. And they, 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 they understand the reality that in every home in Egypt, there is either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. And then can you imagine with your family walking out with, with, 
with your people and and realizing that the reason now that you've been set free, the reason why you've been uh, redeemed, the reason why you now belong to God is because you and your family were under the protection of a lamb. And see, we know that later then in the story, God's going to take his people into a land and he's going to ask them to build for him a house where he's going to live. And that house is going to be on the exact same hill. In fact, the exact same bedrock that Abraham took Isaac. And here they came. They came day after day. They came week after week. They came year after year. They came generation after generation. They came to God as debtors. But they came with their lamb. And on this mount, day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation, the Lord provided. God spared them. He covered them. He protected them because a lamb wasn't. It was a lamb's life for their life. And yet all these lambs that were sacrificed were nothing more than a foreshadowing, according to Hebrews. They all looked and saw in the distance, as Abraham did that day, walking to Moriah with Isaac, as he said. He looked and he saw in the distance. These lambs saw in the distance a greater lamb, a true lamb, a once and for all lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And what were the first words out of John's mouth when he saw Jesus? He said, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus will say in in his life, he said, Abraham longed to see my day. What day? The day when God would take his son up this very mountain. And just as Abraham had to lay the wood on Isaac's back and then take Isaac and place him on the altar, God would lay the wood on his son's back and lay his son on a Roman cross as a sacrifice. And the reason for this is because for the world to be made right, for our lives to be made right, it's going to come through God's judgment, through his perfect justice. And every single one of us is going to face this judgment. We can't avoid it. And we're going to get what we deserve. Whether we think we deserve something, we're going to... The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And that's what we're going to get, except for those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And this is why First Peter 1 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a Lamb without blemish or defect. Listen to this. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. What? Before God made the world, God knew that that his beautiful world would go bad. He knew that Adam would blow it. He knew that we would blow it. He knew that his good creation would fall into utter ruin. But he also knew that the way that he could make it right, the way he could set it free from its bondage to decay, the way he could deliver it from evil, the way that he could redeem it, it was going to be through a lamb. 
God offering his lamb as a, as a sacrifice to save us, free us, deliver us, redeem us, and to bring us to himself. In fact, in Revelation 5, um, John is brought into the throne room of God and he sees God there sitting on the throne and, and then he sees this scroll and the scroll represents the, the, the book of, of, of the future and, and God's future triumph over evil and, and the new heavens and the new earth and God's final redemption. And, and he's looking at that, that book, but it, no one can open it. And so John begins to weep. An elder comes up to John and says, John, don't weep. And it's almost as if he points and he says, look, you see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king to end all kings? He has won. He has triumphed. And John says, and when I looked, he says, I looked and I saw a lamb, a lamb as if it had been slain. You know how God wins? You know how he triumphs? So that we can say today, we are more than conquerors. Through a lamb. A lamb. And listen to what it says next. It says, and he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then John says, then I looked, I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and strength and wisdom and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Is that the song you sang? We're all going to come face to face with this king. And his judgment will fall on us. And when his judgment falls, just like it does throughout the biblical story, it simultaneously condemns and it saves. Early in the story, it comes in the form of a flood, and it judges the world, but it saves Noah. It destroys Sodom, but it saves Lot. It condemns Egypt, yet it redeems Israel. And 2,000 years ago in Passover, God's judgment came down again, and the world went dark, and All of it, all of it fell on the lamb. And as God's judgment came down on the lamb 2,000 years ago, 
God's salvation went forth. And the Bible speaks of a day when his judgment, it's, it's going to come. It's going to be the ultimate judgment day. In fact, Revelation says that when it comes, it's going to make the plagues of Egypt look tame. And here's the question I have for you. What side of that judgment will you be on? Will it condemn you forever? Or will it redeem you? It has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has absolutely nothing to do with how good you are. It has absolutely nothing to do with how often you go to church. There's only one, one, one that will offer you salvation. It's the blood of the Lamb. Look at what it says in Exodus. God says, when I see the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over. I will protect you. Are you right now covered in the blood? Is your life hidden in him? Have you placed your complete trust in his provision? Only your heart can answer that question. Let's pray. God, you're more good than we could even ever imagine you to be. We could never write this. We could never even make this up. We could, we could never reach this high. That the king of the universe would win, would win by becoming a weak helpless lamb, slain, slaughtered. And God, I have to believe that there are many people even in this room right now who don't know you. They, they haven't beheld you yet. They, they're not living under the blood of, uh, of Christ. They're trusting in themselves. They're seeking and looking to other things. And so right now, God, I just pray and I'm going to ask the people that know in their heart that they want to pray this prayer for the first time. Jesus, I am a debtor. And I behold your provision. I place my life under your blood. I, I claim your righteousness as my righteousness. I trust you. I believe in you. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. And God, I just pray this morning that wherever we are, God, that we would place our lives under your protective covering lamp and its blood. In Jesus' name.